Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Joined this week by two of my DevX colleagues. Uh, One is a name well-known to all of you, Colin Lynch, who's, of course, a reporter here at DevX covering the UN and global policy in general. Great to have you here this week. Hey, Raj, how are you doing? Good to hear from you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and we are joined by the newest reporter at DevX, Alyssa Mulene is with us. Hey, Alyssa. Hey, Raj, how are you? Good to be here. Yeah, welcome to the team, first and foremost. It's great to have you here at DevX. You're gonna be based in DC and covering all things US government, uh, especially US foreign aid, of course which is a very busy beat and you've gotten started already with a whole bunch of stories just this week. So it's great to, great to have you today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. Maybe we start there because there is a, there are a lot of headlines trying to get through this week. Uh, let's talk about U.S. government for a second. Um, our colleague, Michael Igo had a big story about sort of what the Biden administration's legacy might be in foreign aid. And obviously it's a big question mark at the end of the headline and the story because you know, he might have another term. And then a lot of the things that he has begun to work on and his team has begun to work on might have staying power. But on the other hand, we don't know that. And the alternative is probably very different from a policy standpoint. So curious, Colin, if you saw that story and if you have any any take on Michael's piece. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's interesting. It's sort of a half, you know, uh, glass half full, half empty sort of um, situation we're in right now. So I think, you know, what Michael is sort of suggesting is that, um, you know, citing a number of experts is that this administration was very good in terms of the the vision thing, coming up with a general idea, shifting funding away to big DC-based contractors, um, promoting localization. I think Samantha Power had sort of set out a goal of 25% of contracts by 20, or sort of huge, uh, 25% of contracts by 2025 would be local contracts. And so there was a sense that they were really kind of listening to the community and that she had a very strong vision of doing that. There was also a very positive feeling about the Biden administration signaling that after the Trump administration that the U.S. was fully engaged with multilateralism. Like everything else, sort of getting, you know, sort of uh, entrenched institutions to sort of, you know, turn on a dime is quite difficult. And so there's a lot of sort of frustration that the localization sort of process has not been moving fast enough. Um, Also, more recently, a lot of concern about the impact that um, that Gaza and the U.S. support for Israeli kind of military operations there is going to have on sort of America's reputation as a champion of some of these issues of development and the fact that they're not focused enough on that, um, at least in their view, in, in Gaza right now. Yeah, I think you said it well. It is glass half full, glass half empty. And one of the sort of bottom lines of the piece, I think some of the experts Michael spoke to, essentially think this year is pretty critical, that this is the time when if they can take some of these big visionary ideas, as you mentioned, and actually get them implemented, then there's a chance they'll have more staying power, which is something we've seen in prior presidential transitions, where you see initiatives started by one administration, and they carry over to the next administration, even 
So you might imagine there would be a, an opposition to an idea created by a different president from a different party. Once they get implemented to a certain degree, they tend to have staying power. And I think that's what a lot of the experts are saying here is, can we get to that point? And obviously, in particular, around localization, that is such a, a key pillar of President Biden and Samantha Power, you know, their, their vision for USAID. And it's really connected to a story you wrote, Alyssa, this week, which is about new guidelines coming out for federal grant making. And it connects a lot to localization. Maybe you can just take us through, you know, what that story is all about. Absolutely. So these are a set of new guidelines that are being proposed that if passed wouldn't happen until later this year. Um, but a lot of them do really, as you said, relate to these localization efforts. I mean, the whole point of kind of these proper these proposed guidelines are to make things easier, uh, especially for organizations or agencies or businesses that might not have worked with USAID in the past. So these are things like reducing burdens on say, compliance or, uh, you know, the way in which organizations would even apply for grants in the first place. There's one piece of the new guidelines that would actually enable announcements to be translated into languages other than English, which is new. Um, there's other sorts of different things that the government is proposing in terms of making it a little easier for subgrantees, um, which are often smaller, more local organizations to bypass particular red tape um, and particular types of things, for example, getting a particular number um, for registration purposes. So these are all efforts to make it a little bit easier to work with the agency and a little bit easier to work with the government, both, in fact, domestically and internationally. Um, now, whether that'll pass will remain to be seen for the rest of the year, but it could help um, and it could make a difference in terms of USAID's larger aims. Yeah, I, I guess I think about this and Colin, you referred to it like the entrenched bureaucracy, I think were your words. I think there's sort of three major hurdles that reformers who want to reform the aid system in the United States face. A big one is the bureaucracy, sort of the culture inside agencies like USAID, which have been grown up and trained around avoiding risk, you know, making sure that, that the money that taxpayers entrust them with isn't wasted uh, in corruption or, you know, in some other way that, that, they, that would kind of give a black eye to the agency. So I think there's a cultural bureaucratic issue that you referred to. Then there's also like these kinds of rules, things like not being able to translate an announcement into another language, which sounds so obvious and you would imagine could have been tackled a long time ago, but still stand in the way of a basic thing like localization, right? So here we are at 10%, we're trying to get to 25%. That was the goal you referred to. And we still aren't translating the announcements into local languages. You can imagine how that would slow down that process. And then I guess the third leg of the stool, which maybe is obvious, but it's so important too, is Congress, because obviously Congress has a huge role to play here in terms of funding the staff positions inside these agencies, ensuring that they're staffed up enough to do, to do the kind of work we're talking about. And of course, the earmarks that they put on, on foreign assistance and the many other places that Congress can act or not act to reauthorize and to fund uh, all the various programs that fall under this big umbrella of foreign assistance. So there's a reason why I think reform has been slow. And at least I think your piece really gets to a key element of it, which are these federal grant making guidelines that stretch way beyond foreign assistance. They affect everything in the U.S. government. Um, but there's you know some what is it, 16 billion, I think you mentioned in your piece in, in federal grants last year. And the vast majority went to a pretty small number of, of organizations, right? Exactly. And I think given what you've just mentioned about cost, I mean, that's another pretty big thing that can change. It, again, might sound like a little bit, but for smaller organizations who don't have 
you know, often grants to cover their operating ex expenses. One proposal in this new guidance would be to increase um, the amount from 10 to 15% um, for kind of unlimited, unrestricted funding, which can be critical for small organizations. I mean, you think about an aid agency or, or rather a nonprofit that spends vast amounts of time and effort to even apply for one of these grants. You know, what's the cost of that? So again, it's it's this is something that USAID's been saying for a long time in terms of whether or not they will be able to localize and really be able to give money to these smaller organizations who are deciding whether or not they want to balance the cost of applying in the first place. You know, I, yeah. I also wonder, I also wonder issues like, you know, I mean, now the trend is to move towards localization and, you know, who knows what this will look like in five, 10 years, you know, will, you know, the sort of questions of accountability become more complicated. I mean, you know, just think about it. You know, if you're if you're kind of trying to do sort of do oversight of a smaller number of larger institutions, you know, there's, you know, you're you're sort of have some uh, ability to do that. I mean, if you have multiple of, you know, of organizations, you know, how do you kind of do oversight? You know, when instead of dealing with one, two big organizations, you know, you're dealing with 50 or 100 or, or more. And to me, that just seems like a Herculean challenge that, you know, we're going to be probably grappling with if this whole process of localization really kind of picks up traction. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it, it gets to this kind of broader cultural change. I sort of started to talk about that at USAID. Um, but a big part of making the localization effort work, I think, requires a new vision of what success and failure mean in this context. And you know, for a long time since these institutions were set up, failure was money being, you know, wasted or, you know, stolen. And and now I think there's a new budding view that actually failure is when the programs themselves don't actually work. And they're not working often because we are giving the funding to very large international organizations and not getting it to the local groups that are more proximate, know what to do, have the best and latest vision and technology of how to solve problems. So I think it's a big shift to make that, you know, I was talking to a congressional staffer yesterday who was talk, telling me this exact thing and the, the sense that we need this, this shift in culture and in vision for what these agencies are meant to do. And of course, in Congress, a lot of the focus is on how do you counter China? And so there may be a moment when members of Congress who are very focused on countering China could align with this vision of making sure U.S. assistance is actually more effective and, and seeing that as the bigger risk, not corruption or waste. So it, it is a really interesting moment we're in. And the pendulum could swing too far, Colin, in five, 10 years from now, people are really concerned about accountability. But at this point, uh, we're certainly operating under much more of a, uh, of a risk averse and, and highly accountable structure than the alternative. We had a, um, a, an opinion piece from Celeste Brubacher this week as well, uh, the title of it is how USAID can scale an evidence-based approach in its grant making. And it's it's worth a read because I think it aligns really well with Alyssa with your piece uh, too, just thinking about how do you get out of this rut in a way that the, the current system is in. The world is facing a range of health threats from an increase in disease outbreaks to the health impacts of climate change. I'm Janelle Ravelo, Senior Global Health Reporter for DevEx. Every Thursday, we bring you exclusive news and insights on how the health sector is finding solutions to these challenges in our free weekly newsletter, DevEx Checkup. Visit devex.com newsletters to subscribe. So, Colin, you mentioned that Michael's story also talks about Gaza. 
and how the legacy there can sort of swamp everything else the administration is trying to do. Now, you also, you and Alyssa had an important piece this week about one of the latest developments when it comes to the humanitarian effort in Gaza, and that's related to UNRWA, the UN agency responsible for humanitarian relief there. Tell us a little bit more about that piece column and, and, uh, and where it sort of fits into this broader picture. Well, I mean, let's go back to what you said about the cultural shift on funding. Um, you can have a cultural shift, but politics can sort of unravel that very, very quickly, in which is what we're seeing in, in, in the situation in Gaza. UNRWA has always been quite a controversial organization. It was established after the Second World War. Um, it is uh, a, a, attending to you know, a population of over 5 million Palestinians spread throughout the Middle East. And there was always a sense, I think, particularly in the U.S. government and other governments that, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, the politics of people in UNRWA, um, particularly since they're generally relying on a, on a workforce that's entirely Palestinian, um, that, you know, they may, you know, they, some of them might hold extremist views, some of them might not. Um, but there was sort of an understanding that the overwhelming uh, sort of need for stability in the region to support, you know, these, you know, millions of people was sort of more important than the fact that there might be some awkward, embarrassing stories about, you know, extremist literature in schools uh, that are kind of organized by it and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, but what we see kind of in this latest case, which we reported on, this case which involved uh, Israel sort of providing, making allegations that a dozen UNRWA workers were directly involved in the October 7th Hamas massacre. Um, presumably the information they provided was sufficient enough to get the UN to fire nine of them, um, sort of indicated that there was credibility behind, um, you know, behind the reports. And then you had, you know, a, a succession of governments, Germany, the United States, UK, others suspending aid. And, and, you know, it's now been a few days since then. And I think that, you know, governments and donors are starting to wonder whether they've gotten a little too far ahead on their skis and they haven't really sort of thought of plan B. So you have on this one hand, the tension between, you know, ensuring that UNRWA, you know, funding is not abused and, and serves the interest of Hamas. On the other, you're faced with prospect of famine, massive um, humanitarian crisis in the country. And I think that, you know, you're already starting to see the U.S. and others kind of soften their approach. I mean, everybody is awaiting the UN to complete an internal investigation into these allegations. But um, but I think there's a recognition that there are problems with UNRWA, but it's the only game in town. And, you know, in Gaza, you know, traditionally, um, I mean, before the crisis, UNRWA employed 13,000 Palestinians. Now there are about 3,000 um, uh, Hamas workers continuing to deliver aid. Um, they've faced enormous hardships, uh, the largest loss of life in the UN operation in history with more, more than 150 dead. Many of them, their families are have been injured, killed in, in the bombing, and many, you know, likely have um, ties, connections, familial ties to people in Hamas. So it's a very messy operation, and it's hard in, in the political climate to be sort of nuanced about it. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And so you've seen some humanitarian groups trying to be nuanced because they understand exactly what you're saying, which is, well, what's the end game here? You know, if you don't have UNRWA, you, maybe many of the critics are right, but if they are, then what? And, and it, there hasn't really been a, 
a credible alternative that's been put forward for, for how you would address this urgent humanitarian disaster without them. And obviously there's a lot of international aid organizations working there and trying, but it sure, it sure seems like what's getting in and what's getting to people is so much less than what's needed at this point. Just one thing to be clear, because you, you said that there were 12 underemployees implicated and, and under has fired nine of them. The reason they fired nine of the 12 is two are known to be dead. And there's a third that I believe is, is unaccounted for. Um, so essentially under said immediately we're, we're firing all the people who, who have been accused of this and the, and the accusations do seem credible from what the Israeli government put forward. Um, Alyssa, anything else you want to comment on, on this story? Yeah. You know, I think just to the points raised there that this, is causing a ripple effect, right? I mean, uh, on Tuesday, I watched a briefing in US Congress where a number of different, um, mostly Republican leaders in the House Committee on Foreign Affairs really kind of were talking about this and worried about um, funding UNRWA altogether, you know, whether or not it's a, you know, to kind of talking about whether it should be a pause or just defund the agency or, you know, someone as far as just saying, let's just, you know, defund the United Nations overall. And and there are different things that are coming up. I think there's just crises of confidence um, because of this. And, you know, as I think we mentioned in our piece, that could be longstanding. Um, so it'll be interesting to kind of see where this turns out and whether or not this aid resumes and, and when it resumes and what's at stake in the meantime. Yeah, there was a bit of, you know, an immediate uh, response from governments, including the U.S. government, saying we're stopping funding. But then after a couple of days, it became clear not every government was doing that. You know, the mm -hmm. EU and Norway are not doing it. It's just a couple of examples. And even the U.S. government's funding has already in many ways been transferred. There was very little, I guess, waiting to be transferred yet to UNRWA. So there was a very quick public reaction. But uh, I think in the background, it, there's not such an immediate uh, effect to the agency. Although the long-term effect that you referred to, Colm, you know, could be significant if if there isn't some resumed confidence that UNRWA is the right organization to be funded to do this kind of work going forward. Yeah, there, there's also, I mean, there's an interesting sort of history. I mean, um, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, conservatives in the U.S., um, principally, I mean, Jared Kushner during the Trump administration, they have very, for a long time, been trying to sort of dismantle UNRWA. And one of the main reasons why they want to do that is because they feel that it kind of undermines the prospect for resolving the conflict in the sense that um, it perpetuates the notion that there's a permanent refugee population that's growing and that continues to aspire to return to the homes and, and lands of the um, of their ancestors who in the 1940s were driven from that land. And that was a, a population of about 700,000 in the 40s, and it's now grown to a population of about 5 million. So the Israelis sort of feel like, you know, these people need to be resettled in the countries where they reside if they're outside of um, West Bank and, and Gaza, and that, um, that UNRWA and its existence sort of prevents this from happening. And UNRWA's sort of position is that the right of return, issues about the right of return need to be resolved in a final political settlement between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and that that's the answer. And, you know, one of the issues is, is that the Israelis think that these other UN agencies will somehow accelerate um, the resolution of this problem, but there is no reason to believe that that that's the case, that bringing in, say, the UN High Commissioner for Refugee Organization, which is something Israelis wanted, that that will resolve the issue, that, you know, that they will resettle them. They 
likely won't if there's no political agreement. Yeah, that is a fascinating wrinkle. And of course, UNRWA is serving that entire population, right? We're focused very much on what's going on in Gaza, but they are serving Palestinians in the West Bank, in, I guess, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, I think. Do I have that yeah. right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a bigger organization. I mean, even just in Gaza, I think it's 13,000 employees in total. Um, and yeah, again, I think the real question for the humanitarian community is, well, if not UNRWA, then who? And uh, you mentioned UNHCR, but you know, is there a credible alternative in the very near term, given the urgency of the situation, uh, if they were to, to experience a significant you know, funding shortfall? Right. And there's not going to be 13,000 internationals going in to replace UNRWA, right? So if you even create a new agency to deal with this, they're going to rely on Palestinian workers who have, you know, varying degrees of support antipathy for either Hamas or the Israelis or whatever. So, you know, the, the population that is likely to carry out, you know, any sort of humanitarian response is going to be Palestinian. And so I, I don't know that, that, you know, you bring in a new agency and it fundamentally changes the facts on the ground. Yeah, and this story obviously continues to evolve. Um, the broader Gaza humanitarian crisis story. There was a piece in the Washington Post, I think it was today, um, just talking about how Samantha Power, the administrator at USAID, has been confronted by her own staff on a couple of occasions now. And it's really, you know, we've you reported on this column. I mean, it's really divided um, people within agencies like USAID. It's caused, uh, you know, a lot of soul searching and questioning within the development community. Um, and in particular, within people who support the Biden administration. Absolutely. This is, it's been, I mean, within the UN system, um, there's been enormous dissent and tension between leadership and organizations like the World Food Program, UNICEF, and, and the staff who feels that the leadership has not been quite forceful enough on pushing for ceasefire. Um, so it's, it's, it's become quite tense. It's bleeded into the U.S. political um, campaign. It's, you know, deeply um, sort of you know, exacerbating tensions within American culture. Um, you know, we see all these battles in American universities over um, questions of, of how institutions are responding to the crisis. So it's, it's, been, it's been quite extraordinary. Yeah, this really is a very heightened moment. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a story we'll continue to cover. Let, let me move on to another headline from the week um, about one of the world's most prominent advocacy organizations, uh, the One Campaign. I'm curious if either of you saw that story and maybe want to share a little bit about what, what, we, uh, what we reported. Um, yeah, earlier announced that there will be an elimination of 50 positions. Um, this is due to rising costs and increasing competition and all sorts of things of that nature. Um, so... Yeah, I think given the, the year that it's been, or the year that it will be with the election um, and all sorts of different changes coming up in development, um, yeah, I think a lot of agencies are really thinking about what will happen, um, right? Like reduced capacity, reduced number of folks that are working. Um, I think it's a 30% shift if I'm getting that right. Um, yeah, that's right. It's yeah, a 30% yeah. cut. Uh, so it's a really significant um, cut to a storied institution. It's been around a long time. And that is widely known in the development community. I mean, it's in a way a, a total of 150 employees it might not sound like that many. Um, there are many bigger agencies in global development, but one, you know, founded by Bono um, and a couple of others, including Jamie Drummond and Robert Shriver, 
you know, it, it just punches way above its weight in terms of staff size. And so a change like this is really interesting. And, and it asks, you know, forces everyone to sort of ask what's happening there and what is the, what are the broader implications? Um, and one campaign has gone through some leadership shifts. Of course, Gail Smith, who led the institution for seven years, just stepped down. And uh, the person who many people thought might replace her, Tom Hart, also left, and he's now the new head of interaction. So they've got an interim uh, leader at, at the organization right now and, and a search underway for a new president. So it's a, it's a real moment for the One Campaign and for a lot of the organizations that rely on the One Campaign to carry the water on some of the very issues we started talking about. And they're, they're very well known for sort of the inside lobbying that happens on Capitol Hill, in the UK Parliament, in Brussels, et cetera, in addition to some of the broader, more public engagement work they do, you know, letter writing and petition signing. Um, on things like the uh, the replenishment of IDA at the World Bank, for example. Um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this story, Colin, from Michael. It was a story from Michael Igo, I should say. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I mean, just sort of personally, this you this bizarre sort of split screen, as Elisa was mentioning, where, you know, um, you know, uh, statements out of the Fed are looking pretty positive, might have rate, you know, um, decreases not now but in the not near future the economy seems to be doing well and then across segments i mean we see it in the media of course the la times 150 um, staffers there other news organizations suffering we're seeing it with the open society foundations cutbacks there so i mean it's a very very difficult time i mean happily you know we are actually in the hiring mode and, and, and happily hired Alyssa this week, but that's not at all. That's sort of running counter to, you know, what we're really seeing in the industry. And so in the case of one, you know, it looks like organizations are forced being forced to sort of try to really kind of narrow down what their niche, you know, kind of um, value added is to, in the space. And so, you know, they're kind of going to move away from the big sort of anti-poverty movement programs that they were backing, focusing really intensely on, on you know African issues, um, so I, I think they're all kind of jockeying to figure out you know what is a sort of sustainable role for them, and 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 it might mean that you know organizations are are shifting to reflect different priorities. Um, you know, in the case of OSF, um, more on sort of social justice, uh, more on politics. Um, and, you know, we're seeing one doing something similar, but, you know, going in their own direction, trying to carve out their own sort of identity. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It's, I think a lot of organizations are going through this something of an identity crisis right now. And it's partly just due to the external environment, you know, and how challenging things are getting, not just in terms of funding, but just in terms of the work itself, right? What needs to be done? I mean, the if you think about the one campaign, they've they've grown during a period in which there was a growing bipartisan consensus around increasing funding for things like global health. And now we're at a very different moment where things look pretty ugly on Capitol Hill and not just in the United States, all over the world. You know, some of the early polling around European parliamentary elections looks like, you know, a likely rightward shift. So you can think about the work of groups like One or OSF as facing a much more challenging external environment than they have before and forcing them to do just what you said. Um, and you know, that's kind of revisit what is that core value add? And in the case of the one campaign, at least at this point, it looks like they're really doubling down on Africa and saying, how do we zone in there and do a better job you know, within African governments in terms of their lobbying effort and advocacy work? 
So it'll be an interesting story to follow um, going forward, and we certainly will. Uh, we've kind of run out of time, so I'm, I'm going to just thank my two colleagues here, Colin Lynch and Alyssa Mielene. It's great to get a chance to talk to the two of you, and especially you, Alyssa, a huge welcome to the team here at DevEx. Thank you so much. Great to chat, Raj. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Raj. Thanks, everybody. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.